Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. We're now three months into the coronavirus pandemic with over 35,000 cases reported in the United States. And we're halfway through the 15-day unofficial economic lockdown period that Donald Trump announced once he decided to take the virus seriously. But now, reportedly, Trump's considering pulling back on the lockdown and letting businesses reopen, which he himself indicated with a tweet just before midnight on Sunday, March 22nd. Quote, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. At the end of the 15-day period, we will make a decision as to which way we want to go." End quote. The first to report that new development was Jonathan Swan of Axios, who's broken many stories about the Trump White House. Jonathan's an old friend, and I was able to catch up with him via social distancing, of course, online, the morning after his story first broke on Monday, March 23rd. Jonathan Swan, my good friends, good to see you again. You too, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think most people don't know that you got your start in television on the Bill Press show many years ago. Well, I mean, I think you're taking a little too much credit for, uh, you know, I was a big, I was a superstar in Australia. You're trying to, you know, you're just like, this is like revisionist history here, but, you know. That's what we practice, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bill, you were my godfather here in the U.S. That's true. I'm proud to yeah. be so. Thank you. Yeah. So, Jonathan, let's start with the little bit of breaking news. The interview you did, extraordinary interview with the Chinese ambassador to the United States. Overall, coming out of that interview, what impression did you get about the current state of relations between the United States and China? Uh, about as bad as they've been ever. I mean, I mean, certainly in modern memory, you have a virus that is killing people all over the world. And then you have uh, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson who is on the record saying that the U.S. seeded this virus, that they made it, concocted it in a military laboratory in the United States and then planted it in Wuhan. And then you have the United States president calling it the Chinese virus, so, you know, the Wuhan virus, et cetera, which... Uh, many Chinese uh, people find very offensive. So uh, you have basically uh, a propaganda war going on uh, at the same time as a virus is ravaging people all over the world. It's, It's pretty bad. Is there any truth to the charge that China knew about it and did not tell us about it or the world about it? Oh, oh, absolutely. What, look, to be clear, Trump says they should have told us three months earlier. That Now, that's nonsense. That the, the virus didn't exist for that long. But, but what is a stone-cold fact is that for three weeks, 
And these are very critical weeks. This is at the start of a pandemic. You talk to any epidemiologist, they will tell you that you need to stamp it out at the very beginning. And, and it's very important to share information. So in, in December, doctors in Wuhan started raising alarms about this respiratory virus that was very, very dangerous. Instead of listening to them and putting out this information, the authorities actually hauled them into the police station, forced them to put out these sort of confessionals saying that their information was false. Chinese censors censored social media, scrubbing references to the virus. And then the Chinese government put out false information. January 15th, they said that it was unlikely to spread on state television, unlikely to spread from human to human. This is more than two weeks after doctors starting raising alarm and doctors were finding that it spread human to human. And in that period, you had millions of people leaving Wuhan without any screening. And that's how in this globalized world, it spread the way it did. So absolutely, those first three weeks uh, were critical and the Chinese government covered it up. And the one doctor who tried to raise warnings about it? He uh, died. Silent? Yeah, there were, there were more than died. one. There were, yeah, there was actually eight doctors who were holding, but the famous doctor is Dr. Li Wenliang, uh, who, who sounded the alarm. Instead of being listened to, he was hauled into the police station, forced to sign and fingerprint uh, a confessional saying that he was putting out untrue facts. And then he died. He died of the coronavirus. Um, young guy really tragic um, situation. It looks like, at least they're telling us now, that China has no new cases and they seem to have it under control. Could the, A, do you believe that's true? And B, could the United States ever do what China has done in order to get this behind us? So, the, look, I think there's no doubt that what China has done after those first three weeks has mitigated the virus in China, perhaps to an extraordinary extent. I mean, they shut down uh, a province, yeah. Hubei province, they shut down cities. Um, and we don't know, we can't trust the data coming out of China. It's just not something you can take gospel for. So we don't know what the exact figures are. But I think from a directional trend point of view, um, you, when you talk to epidemiologists, they, they do say that China has got a, a really strong grip on this virus. But this is what you can do in an authoritarian society. I mean, you saw, I don't know if you saw the uh, the footage of it, but what they were doing was they were going door to door yeah. in Wuhan, hauling people out. If you have a temperature bill, they knock on your door, they will literally drag you no matter what you want, kicking and screaming into quarantine. Yeah, now, Epidemiologists will say it's a public health thing. It's quite effective. Uh, yeah. Turns out when you when you when you haul people out of their homes and stick them somewhere, you know you can get a lot of stuff done. Um, I don't know how that would fly in in New York City, uh, you know, or, or in um, California. No, I can tell you how it would fly. <laughs> but Bill, you know, on your question, there's some really interesting um, uh, public health. So what we're seeing now in some of the more authoritarian countries is the way they're using technology to combat this virus, I mean, it can be very effective when you have a compliant population that's used to being completely obedient to the government. So Singapore is a really good example. They've, right. they've done a fantastic job in limiting, we only saw the first two deaths in the last week. And what they're doing, a friend of mine who lives there sent me the thing on WhatsApp. So the government's communicating every day with uh, citizens on WhatsApp. They've created an app that you download on your phone 
and you have to switch your, your Bluetooth on, Bill. And what it does is you'll walk around and it will ping. So if someone, you know, later tests positive to the coronavirus, they will trace that person through their what their Bluetooth interactions. And anyone who's been within six feet wow. of them will get notified by the government. Wow. And you go, so that's the sort of stuff you're seeing um, in Singapore. Now, that's a, a voluntary app. But on the mandatory side, when people have been arriving into Singapore, they, they've had to quarantine at home for 14 days. But it's not just like, you know, in, in America where they'd say, OK, guys, you know, the government would say, please do this. The government's absolutely enforcing it. I mean, they are getting, they'll get text messages or WhatsApps and they have to send the government their GPS location to prove that they're at home. And if they don't, they could face jail time or a fine. So that's the sort of measures that you're seeing uh, in some of these countries. Wow, that's astounding. And that yeah. you'll never, you'll never, you'll never see, see here. here. Not, not compatible. Right. So at more than one point, uh, Jonathan, your interview with the ambassador got a little testy. Uh, particularly when you ask him very legitimately about um, a reporter who's gone missing. Mr. Ambassador, uh, we're talking about information getting out to the public. I have to ask you about some journalists that have disappeared. Where is the citizen journalist Chen Choshe? He was doing some of the early videos from inside Wuhan that were showing the response to the virus and, and, and the chaos that was happening inside Wuhan. I have not heard of this person. Really? Chen Shosho? Why not? Well, you were asked about him on, on Face the Nation on February the 9th. No, I was not asked about any particular journalist. You were. She named, Margaret, I watched the clip, Margaret Brennan named Chen Shosho. You were asked but about But I did not know him then. I don't know him now. Well, it's a month later. Weren't you curious to find out who he was? We have 1.4 billion people back in China. How can I learn everything about everybody? I'm not asking you to. I'm saying this is a journalist who has been written about in the New York Times, the international media. His family and friends want to know where he is. You haven't been curious to inquire about his whereabouts? My responsibility is to manage our relation with the United States. As for domestic situation, we have people back in China who are dealing with uh, these issues. And we have the judiciary departments that are dealing with the issues. So why not let people do their own job? Could you possibly believe that he never heard of this guy? No, and that's why, I mean, I, I thought he would have a good um, cover story here because I, the reason I asked this question is he was asked specifically about uh, Chen Shosha on Face the Nation on February 9th. And he said he claimed then that he didn't know who he was. It was implausible then, Bill, because Chen Shosha has been all over the international media, the New York Times, you know, the BBC, pick an international media outlet. I mean, the ambassador is a very sophisticated man. He's reading the international press. The, the chances that he's not aware of these Chinese journalists who've just disappeared, strangely mm. disappeared after they started doing critical reporting about the government from inside Wuhan. So I asked him, he said, oh, I never heard of him. And I said, really? That's that's funny. Um, you were asked about him on this day. And then, right. and then he went down this strange track where he said, there are 1.4 billion people in China. I can't be expected to keep touch with everyone. I said, I mean, that's really not what I'm asking you to do. <laughs> that's also not what I'm trying to ask you to do. Yeah. It's, it's quite different. But um, in, on a serious note, this is really, the reason this is important is when you talk about those early three weeks, it's not just a matter of, you know, the Chinese government often has a, 
a refrain where they say, we don't interfere in your domestic politics, you don't interfere in ours. But when it's a globalized world and when people are getting sick and dying from, from a disease, it actually is in our interest to know the decisions that were made at, at the domestic level in those early three weeks. It's not, uh, it's not just a provincial or domestic issue. It's actually a global issue. Right. So let's come back home here for the coronavirus. Um, I was at the briefing yesterday, Sunday, at the White House, um, where President Trump and Vice President Pence made a big deal of we are halfway through the 15-day period that we said we're going to all hunker down and put this thing behind us. We're halfway through. And then about midnight last night, uh, the president tweeted out that maybe we should um, think about taking a different direction at the end of the 15 days because the cure could be worse than the disease. And you, Jonathan, I give you credit, are the first one that I saw who reported this possible, this, that they're considering a change in direction at the White House. What's it all mean? So what's been happening for the last, well, honestly, it's, it's been happening for more than a week now, is that you have a division that's opening up between the president and his political and economic aides versus the public health experts. So you have public health experts who, you know, if it was up to them at the end of the 15 day period, almost certainly would extend a period of some form of social distancing, enforced quarantine, uh, pretty extreme measures to keep the economy in this state of partial shutdown so that people don't get affected. Well, the president and members of his team are very, very anxious about the economy being in this in this shutdown state. And they are starting to lose patience with that public health guidance. And I foresee a situation based on my reporting in which the 15-day period ends and you have an almighty clash between the Dr. Anthony Fauci's of the world inside the administration and the president and some of his senior aides who are thinking about other factors, not just public health factors, but economic factors. And, you know, it's not illegitimate in, to, in the sense of having to weigh these factors because you are making these choices about jobs and all sorts of other things. But the problem is when you talk to public health experts, if they do ignore that and the virus really picks up steam, you know, the, the economic side of things is not going to work out well in that scenario either. Right. So what would that mean? Would that mean restaurants would reopen, businesses would reopen, stores would reopen? Um, what well, do we know? It sets up this interesting situation where obviously private businesses make their own choices and states are also making their own choices. Right. So you could get this situation where, you could, again, this is a, a, a speculative scenario. I'm not saying this will happen, but you could imagine a situation in which the president is giving one set of advice from the White House podium and private industry is taking a whole different direction and certain governors are taking a whole different direction and people are, don't really know what to think. Should we listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci? Should we listen to the public health experts? Or, you know, if you're a Trump supporter living in rural America and you, you believe every word that comes out of President Trump's mouth, you know, do you listen to him? And, and what does that mean for your health? I mean, that's where I see this heading uh, based on my conversations I've had over the last week. And the immediate application of that it, it seems to be on how far we go with the, or how far the administration goes with the Defense Production Act, which the president invoked. And yet again, at the briefing on Sunday, he's, he was clearly very hesitant mm. to actually put force behind it. He said, no, 
The businesses, private companies are responding on their own. Let's let them do that. We're not going to force them to do anything. Uh, so that, that's, a, I guess, an example, right, of this uh, difference of opinion within the administration about how far to go. Yeah, no, that that's definitely true. Trump has been very reluctant to um, to use that uh, those powers. What he isn't reluctant, though, is, uh, and this has been described to me by multiple aides, Trump basically wants to just give out as much cash as he can get away with um, mm -hmm. in this period. He is not... His, his instincts are not sort of the Herbert Hoover, you know, this is, this is not Herbert Hoover in the White House. It, it's someone who, who, who never really cared about the debt in good times and certainly doesn't care about the debt now, has added $3 trillion to the debt during his presidency and is not thinking along those lines. So he's actually, he was pushing his aides to come up with a bigger stimulus package um, in terms of cash handouts. So... You mentioned that he is concerned about the economic impact and therefore maybe a change of direction after the 15 days is up. When you look at the market, which is down at a level, the level where it was when he took office, all of the Trump gains having been lost, when Steve Mnuchin says the unemployment rate could go as high as 20%, when the CDC says as many as 200 million Americans could be infected, is the president also considering the potential political impact? Oh, of course he is. I mean, they all are. I mean, it'd be impossible not to. Um, and it, what it's done is it's worried about it. Uh, well, his team are. I haven't. I haven't discussed it with the president, so I, I don't want to yeah. sort of. But but his team are worried, and he doesn't tend to express concern or articulate concern in the way that most people would. So um, his team is definitely concerned about that. What they here's what has changed. They were running, Trump used to say this, uh, I, he might've even said it publicly. He certainly was saying it privately that, you know, it's the Bill Clinton thing. It's the economy stupid. He was running on lowest unemployment among African-Americans, booming stock market, great economy. You might hate me, but look, you can't afford not to have me right. look at my right. great economy. All that has vanished overnight. All that has vanished overnight. And so now he's pivoting into this, I'm a wartime president. Uh, we've got this enemy. We've got to bind together and fight the enemy. And so he's having to kind of recalibrate um, and try and put his own Trumpian spin on this. He's still doing the, uh, you know, the sort of happy talk, um, you know, talking up some of these experimental drugs that we don't know if they're going to work or not. He's, he's still trying to talk positive, say that this thing will go away. We're going to get back bigger than ever. But the problem is if that, you know, it, it's something that's out of his, his control and the virus isn't responding to his tweets. So if this thing just keeps, you know, God forbid spreading throughout the communities, he's just, it's not something that he can control with uh, his usual toolbox. Uh, our mutual friend Hunter Walker asked the president the other day what, uh, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how he would rate his response or his administration's response uh, to the virus. And the president, of course, automatically said, a 10. <laughs> how would you rate it? I mean, we saw the president at first was reluctant to take this seriously, seemed to be, then definitely said, this is serious. We all got to get together and fight this thing. And now we see again, as you've been reporting, that Maybe he wants to loosen up a little bit. Overall, how do you think the administration has responded? Certainly in the initial period, very, very poorly. Very poorly. 
They were slow to take this seriously. The president was dismissive of the threat, um, said that there was no chance of the pandemic and that everything was going to be solved basically because he'd shut, you know, uh, shut off travel with China. And at the, at the department agency level, just utter dysfunction. I mean, the, getting the tests out has just been completely dysfunctional. Um, inability to get, we, we, we have no idea how far this is spread in the communities because we haven't had adequate testing. We did some early reporting on this when um, the, the CDC laboratory in Atlanta that was developing the test, they couldn't get a proper test done. And so um, the Food and Drug Administration, they sent out someone to to check it out, see what was going on. It was a dirty lab. It was contaminated. So they had to pull this out of this laboratory in Atlanta and move it. I mean, the dysfunction is just almost beyond description. Um, now, they're, they're putting their weight behind it. They're doing, they're going really aggressively at it now and everyone's involved. But if they pivot out after the 15 days, you know, that's, that could easily be undone, all that progress. Right. We're talking with Jonathan Swan from Axios here on the Bill Press Pod. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be uh, right back with Jonathan Swan. Today's podcast brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters, those good men and women of the IAFF, 320,000 strong firefighters and paramedics across the United States and Canada. They're on the front line fighting this coronavirus disease, and they're the ones who particularly need the help of those N95 masks and other protective equipment for the people on the front lines all under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger. We salute the members of the IAF, our brave firefighters and paramedics, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with Jonathan Swan from uh, Axios. Jonathan, as uh, indicated maybe by uh, what we've been talking about so far, you are, you've got a reputation now in Washington for having the best sources of all inside of the Trump White House. I mean, you've broken some pretty big stories. You're the first to report that the United States was definitely going to pull out of the Paris deal. You reported Steve Bannon was going to be fired, that Trump was going to make Jerusalem the capital of Israel, and he was going to pull the plug on DACA, among other scoops that you can uh, claim credit for. Who are your sources in the White House? How high high do they go? (laughs) Oh, Bill. Uh, I have to plead no comment. And and, and I also have to say that that, um, some of my competitors are also very, very well sourced. So uh, I I would never claim to be the the best sourced reporter. Um, But look, it's been a a very leaky um, administration, as I'm sure you noticed. Um, And we've been particularly in the last year, I've been very focused on getting documents out of there because you can't always take people's word for things. So you never could. Um, you certainly can't. And so a lot of the stuff I've tried to, stories I've tried to break, I've, I've tried to really get documents uh, to back them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, could the president himself be one of your sources? I couldn't possibly comment on that, Bill. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. that I think people are interested, and I am too, in how and how you communicate with your sources. Uh, some of these people obviously don't want their names, right, on the stories that you write. Um, so do you have any secret email or secret phone setups? Or do you, you, I'm sure you don't meet in the lobby of the Trump Hotel. Uh, I don't want to get too far into my techniques. I would just say that okay. most uh, communications these days are encrypted. Um, I would not do anything over with anything that is of any, uh, mat that matters that's sensitive over an open phone, um, uh, mm-hmm. either at text or, or, um, or phone or, or phone conversations. And there are certainly people that I deal with that if you went through their phone, um, th- their phone bill, whatever their text, there'll be no trace that they've ever talk to me, contacted me, whatever. But you have to be very, I mean, there are all sorts of precautions you need to take these days with the spread of location-based tracking and things like right. that and the tools. You, you have to really, I mean, there's a phone that I have that I use that I just assume everything is being monitored in one way, shape or form. I, you just have to be overly paranoid because uh, because they're out to get you. Yeah, <laughs> you know they are, and we look forward to reading the, your book about about how you manage to all to do all of that. And finally, why why would anybody you know people complain about leaks, and yet there are leaks in every administration, and particularly as John F. Kennedy said, this vessel leaks from the top, uh, and particularly as you point out, many leaks of from this members of this administration. What's their motivation? change policy or get it really different it, it differs from person to person some uh do it out of a sense of duty that they feel that uh something bad is happening and that they want that to be brought to light uh some of them do it out of petty vengeance or grievance or 
something as venal as wanting to knife one of their colleagues. Some yeah. of them do it to try and affect the policy debate. There's all kinds of reasons that people leak. And, and I found that, you know, they differ from person to person. Is there any one story that you broke about the Trump administration you're most proud of? Um, probably the one that I think gave the most insight. Well, one of the ones that gave the most insight was I, I got a huge leak of all the internal vetting documents that they did for the transition. Mm -hmm. um, and so that gave this sort of blueprint of how they set up their entire government. And it was a haphazard process that resulted in some pretty disastrous picks. Um, and it was also quite revealing. I mean, I mean, I, you know, some of them, um, I remember one of them, Chris Kobach, that they were, uh, Oh, right. You know, looking for a, a Department of Homeland Security role, potentially. So they had these things on the documents called red flags. So, so one of his one of his red flags was, quote unquote, white nationalism. So, you know, a bit of a red flag they had on the document. But, you know, there were some positives as well. But, you know, there was the red flag of white nationalism. So especially for someone they were considering for an immigration post. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so finally, Jonathan, I want to ask you um, a couple of personal questions um, and um, respect your personal life, but some things that, uh, that <laughs> I you know. and you might also, uh, your dad, Norman Swan, yeah. uh, you come from, uh, you're the son of a very famous journalist in Australia. He's been, um, what, 40 years maybe now yeah. as a broadcaster, as a journalist and as a doctor. Yeah. Um, what have you learned from him and what is he telling you today about coronavirus in Australia? Uh, I've learned a lot of what I know from him, particularly when it relates to journalism. He's, um, he, my dad is, is one of my mentors as well as being my dad. Like we still talk all the time. When I'm preparing for a big interview, he'll talk me through the arc of the interview, techniques to draw people out, ways that like, I mean, he's a great interviewer. And I've learned a lot from him on that sense. Um, what he also is very good at is taking very complex information and synthesizing it and making it understandable for a broad audience. And it's, it's quite amazing in this moment in Australia, and I'm hearing this from people back home, there's been stories written about him because the government has done such a lousy job of communicating about the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. People have turned to my dad as, as yeah. the, as the authority, as someone, which is sort of scary in a way they should, you know, be listening to, but he's filled this role. And, and, um, well, he's kind of the Anthony Fauci of Australia. He is, but he's not serving in government. So it's sort of this, yeah. so he's holding the government to account. Um, but what he has managed to be is a voice of science and evidence and clarity in a time when people are looking for that and desperately hungry for that. And, and someone who's untainted by partisan politics. Yeah. Well, uh, how proud he must be of you and you of him uh, as well. Uh, and I also wanted to ask you about your wife. Uh, and I want to remind you, Jonathan, that um, without telling too many stories, um, <laughs> you and I had dinner one night at Ocean Air. And I remember, I remember asking you, so how are things going, Jonathan? You said, things are great. I'm going to marry Betsy Woodruff. Uh... And I, and I asked <laughs> Have you told her this yet? And you said, no, I haven't. And I said, well, I think that's probably a good idea that you might tell her that's your intention. So now you are married and Betsy very busy and also yep. quite a journalist of her own yep. uh, for Daily Beast and MSNBC. Yep. 
How's married life? Married life is great. Uh, we're in quarantine. So we're really, oh. I mean, we're, this is a real test, Bill. You know, we're lucky. Close we're, quarters. Uh, yeah, lucky we like each other. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty tight. Yeah. She's a good cook, though. We're, we're, we're you know, we did a, a rabbit last night, Bill. So, oh, my God. Yeah, you go. would have liked it. Well, give Betsy our best. I will. Sure. And finally, how do people, how can people find you and follow you, sneak peek every Sunday night? But otherwise, what's the best way to keep in touch with uh, the work of Jonathan Swan? Uh, yeah, subscribe to my newsletter, or Axios Sneak Peek. And, um, and Twitter, I suppose, is probably the best one, which is um, Jonathan V. Swan is my Twitter handle. At Jonathan V. Swan. Yeah. And Axios.com and just sign up for the sneak peek. And watch time. our show. Watch Axios on HBO, which is um, our show on HBO. So that, that's where I do my interviews. All right. There you go. Every shameless plug is welcome here at the Bill Press. God Pod. bless you, mate. <laughs> you're a good man. Very proud, <laughs> very proud of you. Thanks for the great uh, work you're doing. And uh, keep it up. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate All it. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. See you, mate. And that's it for our conversation with Jonathan Swan and this edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thank you again so much for joining us. And you know what to do. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod by going to wherever you're listening to this podcast. Pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and then tell all your friends to do the same so they won't miss any future podcasts. Good to have you with us. Stay strong. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Come back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.